Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast. Features one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, let's welcome Tyler Pugh, founder and principal of LMNOP Design. LMNOP Design brings the design and fabrication process into one seamless stroke. LMNOP also specializes in immersive and branded environments with a focus on commercial, retail, and restaurants and is a California registered general contractor. For more information, feel free to visit lmnopdesigninc.com. Again, lmnopdesigninc.com. Calm. Hello, Tyler. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Well, thank you very much for the invite. It's thank you. excited to be here. And thank you for your patience in getting our show started today. It's all good. We had some good laughs. So <laughs> for sure. And speaking of laughs, or maybe a seriousness, Tyler, if you will, can you share with us what galvanizing moment or moments in your life, if you can look back as far back as you can recall, where you kind of see yourself, what you're doing now with LMNOP Design, and you know where it may have started, began, or any uh, particular, as I said, galvanizing moments where you saw where you are now, but in the future, yeah, or in I the think past, in the past, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's definitely a couple clear ones. One of the first ones I'd say is really around the name, uh, the origins of Elemental P. I was 14 years old. I knew that I was going to own companies when I was older. I knew that I wanted to do something big with businesses, and I didn't realize what it was going to be, but I knew that the first company was going to be called Elemental P. And that's really fundamentally because uh, I love the letters in the alphabet. They're fun to say. They sound like a word and are individual letters at the same <laughs> time. Right. And yeah, so that's where Elemental P at least came from. Uh-huh. So you knew at 10? 14. 14. Actually, yeah. Okay, 14. Yeah. So 14 years old, you, you had a, more than a premonition about where you would be now. I, yeah, I was fairly clear. How on accurate is it, if you'd want to say, were there th- things in your life like being on the show uh, <laughs> that you kind of envisioned yourself being a part of and contributing? No, like I wouldn't say like the company, the formation of it, that's um, been coming into fruition is okay. basically it. The idea that I would own businesses and entrepreneurship has always been in my family. So my 
brother owns his own business. My parents own their own business. My grandparents own theirs. Um, like everyone basically owned their own businesses. And so I knew entrepreneurship was a path that I was going to take. I didn't even know architecture was really, like, really cognitively know that architecture was a field until um, much later in life, like almost in college. And I started, I started off in engineering and then went to business uh, and then ended up in the arts. Sculpture and photography is where I landed for my undergrad. And then I decided to travel, uh, moved to New Zealand and then Australia and then through Southeast Asia. That's where I fell in love with architecture and realized that um, the whole time all my artwork was actually building physical spaces. Uh, all of it was installation based and all the photography and sculpture work that I did was placed in physical spaces. So traveling the world, seeing what architecture could be, how it could actually manifest in different ways, um, especially in New Zealand where they use local materials, passive heating systems are just That's right, yeah. like everyone does it, primarily because it's too expensive to ship materials in and why would you heat something that could be heated naturally? And so sure. started to learn this and then connected really well with uh, architects. Like I love the way they think. It's a really good blend of an engineering brain and an artist brain like coming together. They take complex systems and address them with an artistic approach. And that's fundamentally how my brain works. Wow. So, so in New Zealand and Australia, I realized that architecture was going to be my path moving forward and came back to the U.S. and started my master's degree. Yeah. You know what's great is, I mean, a lot of it's great. Everything actually is sculpture. If you can touch back on that We've had several artists on our show, and one of the um, their fears, actually collective fears, is sculpture. Hmm. Can you share with us why it, why it's so different being a sculptor as opposed to like a, an artist with a brush and a paint? If there yeah. is, you know, the difference in your experience. Yeah, like I I love sculpture. I love physical objects that become real that can be interpreted from multiple different perspectives. That individuals, their experience is one of. You know, it's almost like a story. There's an approach to it. They, you walk around the object. You kind of have moments of highs and lows. And so it's almost like a story walking around an object versus a piece of painting or things like that. For me, when I walk up, oftentimes the story is coming out from the painting rather than my own presence uh, being integrated into the painting by my own movement. That is like a large piece of sculpture for me. And so getting to like... I'm fascinated with how humans move and behave and interact with each other in the built environment. Um, I was fascinated um, with actually to the level of neuroscience within architecture. So there's the Academy of Neuroscience and Architecture in San Diego, which is San Diego's where I started my grad school. And that really influenced like how our brains work with architecture, physical objects and yeah. physical spaces is fascinating. It's this unknown territory that we're just like starting to dip our, our toes into. Which I love really that. Exciting. Touch on that a bit, if yeah. you don't mind. You know, what's yeah. your experience in it, in that, that, uh, that realm? Yeah, so um, when I started studying architecture down at uh, the New School of Architecture down in San Diego, I did a year down there. And while I was there, the Academy of uh, Neuroscience and Architecture is uh, connected with the new school as well as with uh, UCSD. And they have a full immersive environment that's basically at that time, which was back in 2005 and six, I believe, they can actually hook a EEG or EKG. Yeah, EKG, yeah. Yeah, up to your brain to actually study brain waves when you're actually going through a three-dimensional space. And so it's starting to correlate like 
like what is actually happening internally on a neuroscience level, which is super fascinating <laughs> with uh, the actual physical spaces. And where I get really, really, really excited about is how do we use this information to apply it to the physical environments that we build to strengthen communities, to uh, strengthen relationships between other individuals, to really actually make spaces really powerful for for individuals as they experience them both individually and collectively. And so that's when I moved from the new school to California College of the Arts here in San Francisco, I moved very intentionally up here to start to pursue the conceptual level of understanding of what that means and how that can be applied to the future of building. That's basically it. I love that. So I shared with you before our show how I really liked it. Your website was very di- is very dynamic. Mm-hmm. Is that explain to me a bit about you know the culture at LMNOP Design? Yeah, so the culture is really fundamentally based mm-hmm. on that great design is in the making. That's our tagline, and it's also like a firm belief that I have is that the act of physically making environments. So we're a General B contractor. We're licensed in OB. We also have a fabrication team and we have a design team. And we're really trying to integrate those all together. And so, like, the belief is is that if you take people from very different backgrounds and very different experiences, put them into a space, give them tools and resources, and also, like, the responsibility to use those tools and resources, creative ideas come out of that, percolate out of that. And so our creative ideas are based in the physical environment. So we're building either, you know, public spaces, we're doing restaurants, retail spaces, all of which we're really trying to engage all the physical senses in to tell a cohesive story for a specific brand so that the customer walking away from that experience really feels like a story was told them, they were a part of that story, and they understand clearly what the brand is there for. And so my belief is that, again, the closer that designers can get to the making of things, like how things are actually produced, the more insights they'll have into how people will actually use them, and the better designers (laughs) they'll be from that. Yeah. That evolution sounds like it's constant, is it? It is, and that's uh, that's the exciting part. Like, um, so if you talk about the culture, not as a cliche or anything like that, but I really fundamentally want to build a self-learning organization, and that's a different approach than typical—not typical, but a lot of architecture firms. An example is very specifically: my name is not the title of the firm; it is something else outside of myself. I am a part of it, and I'm a contributor to it as well as every team member that is part of Elemental P, as well as our vendors, our subcontractors, um, the other designers we work with. Yeah, self-learning. Share with us a bit about the self-learning and how did you arrive at that wanting a self-learning as yeah. an organization? Yeah, self-learning okay. organization. So there's a lot of there's research around this, and the tech companies of Silicon Valley are um, very much a part of this kind of evolution in business, which is that... The speed of business is changing at an ever-increasing rate. That design itself is increasing and what we need to provide, the knowledge base is increasing for our clients. We need to understand more about more things is basically it. Or become have a specialized team, uh, individuals that are specialized that come together and work together. So this kind of speed of things is moving up, moving forward. So 
to build a business or build an organization that's stagnant and dictates things from the top down, uh, really in a uniform way, is not the business I okay. want to create. I actually want to build a business that we uh, challenge ourselves to grow every single day, to learn every single day, and to fundamentally kind of check our egos at the door, like that um, we don't know everything and we are here put on this earth to learn on a daily basis. Yeah. Where, where would you attribute that attribution of wanting to learn on a daily basis? Is there something that you, is it, yeah, where, where does that come from? Because uh, I think it transcends obviously business. Yeah, like it's uh, it's in my DNA. I uh, my mom puts it like I came out of like I came out running, um, basically. Oh, really, that's um, great. And I'm deeply passionate about learning and knowing myself, but also how I can be in better service to this world and this community for my short time on this earth. Yeah. So you definitely have a consciousness, and I heard consciousness is described as being aware that you're aware. Are you aware? <laughs> no, I'm really. very aware that I'm aware. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah. Now, now, there's a quote, and I don't recall call, uh, verbatim what it is. It's uh, from Michelangelo, and it's about the David, and that he saw the sculpture of David before, uh, basically, he discovered it. Mm-hmm. it he, he puts a huh, premium, but he values much more so than creativity, discovery. What's your thought on discovery and creativity, uh, both or you know, whatever yeah. your yeah. your thoughts are. No, that's a that's an interesting, very interesting question. Like I, I think as a, coming from an artist and coming from like a singular person of like vision, basically, and then carving away a stone to create it. I understand that deeply. I think what I'm really intrigued about is how do you do that in uh, collaboration in teams. How do you start working together to carve the stone away to reveal what really wants to come forward? An example of this is, I talk about this with the clients a lot, is as you'll see on our website and things like that, we don't have a singular aesthetic. Our job is actually to listen to the client's needs and what their desires are and listen oftentimes beyond what they're saying, observe how they operate and move and behave and things like that and extract what the environment and brand really is needs to be is basically it so again like oftentimes for an entrepreneur those things already exist so the clients we're working with they exist in there we're just helping them carve them away to create a solid brand both in environments and graphics and the messaging that they're talking about yeah and and music i've heard and read about how difficult it is for a producer to capture the voice of the artist Mm -hmm. without putting their signature sound or signature arrangements in the music. Mm -hmm. How do you do that where you still keep the voice of your client Mm -hmm. without inflecting your own, you know, here's here's LMNOP design, we know it's them. Yeah. If there even is a way. I think it's an ego check all the time. Like I think, and we do that through our team, a multidisciplinary team. Um, so, so jumping back real quick sure. to a self-learning organization, to build one, you have to have agency and autonomy to all the individuals that are there and accountability to moving forward is basically it. And so what I mean by that is everyone on our team has uh, the rights to push the red button or pull the red flag is basically it. 
And what I mean by that is if we're going down a design path that like the ego of the either the organization or even my ego starts to play a role in it, everyone on the team has a chance to go, hey, like, check yourself and we can do it. <laughs> with each other. And in, as a principal, that's kind of a hard position. I'm like, oh, yeah. I know what's best, but I also have to check my ego at the door because a junior designer coming into the space may offer insights or see something or hear something that is far more intelligent and impactful than I can even see, really. And so we do that as a collaborative team in the truest sense of the word of collaboration. Again, it goes back to your uh, your valuing. It sounds a bit um, ethereal, but your value in life and uh, and the uh, finite time that we have here, so that you can optimize, you know, kind of who you're supposed to be. Absolutely. Like I'm, yeah. I know deeply that we have a very limited time on this earth, and I want to do, I want to do a lot, and I really. I get the most enjoyment out of building teams that start to see their own like deep and profound power that is unique on this planet. Yeah, that's interesting. So how do you do you onboard pers- uh, people with LMNOP? Mm-hmm. How do you do you what, what do you look for in your even interview with them so that you see aha, sure they're not you know, not fully actualized, but mm-hmm. they're not, you know, where I think they can be, but I, I, how can they see themselves, the light in their own selves? Uh, that's my journey. I've been learning how oh, to okay. do that. I'd say like, I, I know how to do it for myself and learning how to do that with teams. Um, and the team, the teams that I've had over the years have, have taught me so much in that regard with regards to onboarding, uh, and interviewing. I, I really seek to understand where people want to go. And if you listen, like the old adage, if you wait for seven seconds, they'll give you the answer (laughs) because of the uncomfortability. I think on my end, it's been learning how to be patient to wait for the time for them to come to the table. That's basically it. That's interesting, (laughs) learning to be patient. Mm -hmm. So is there a bit of um, urgency? Oh, impatience is my edge. Everyone close to me will will say. (laughs) All right. So it's you've, you have impatience, but you're try, you're working. It sounds like diligently to under to learn or understand patience. Yeah, that's that's probably my life journey. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh yeah. If you were born running, yeah. Then yeah, that naturally, patience would be something you're searching for. You know, and that collaboration. How do you work to collaborate with you know a fellow designers, fellow builders, architects? City officials, mm-hmm. how is there a formula that you you have as kind of a handbook, so to speak, mm-hmm. or is it something that it changes every project? So the Elemental P was founded in 2012. We've gone through several evolutions at this point, from a sole proprietorship, just me basically, to a small team to a bigger team. For us, we're at 11 right now which for me, that's a, that's a lot of people, which is super exciting. And the team's like so lucky. I'm so lucky to have the team. Uh, and so <laughs> forgot the question is basically it. Yeah, the collaboration. Is there a formula that you that you have to, that uh, like, okay, here's who we're going to be working with and this is what we can expect and here's our process? Great or no, yeah. does it uh, shift? So the process, Lindy, the creative director who came on full-time in October, and we've been contracting together for a couple of years now, she's been amazing to help me support in, and the team support in defining our design process. So basically we're saying design our design process, mm-hmm. which 
for us, it's really about these moments of coming together, defining everyone's skill sets, and then separating and moving apart. Collaboration in its truest sense values everyone at the table, and everyone needs to come with their own unique skill set. And values means we hear everyone at the table. So how we apply that with our clients is we spend time with all stakeholders. Uh, like say we're working with a restaurant, we want to talk with everyone on the team, from cooks to dishwashers to the owner of the restaurant. We want to understand what is it like to be in this space and what would be a successful space, not just the customers. Then we also need to do research on what is the customer base and things like that. If we're working with an office, we want to talk with everyone on the team and talk about the culture that they're trying to create and how the space and environment can support that and the graphics and things like that. Uh, the brand can support that culture, but we have to start with the people. If they don't even know the culture that's trying to be instilled or they have a different idea of the culture, then we're actually connecting the dots. An example is at a project this last week, I told the client that we need to slow down and talk more to the people, the team members, because they're seeing the needs and the owner is not seeing that they see some of the needs. The staff is seeing a whole other set of needs that we need to actually address first. Otherwise, whatever we do is not going to be successful uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. How do you arrive at that? If there's an yeah. arrival or does it kind of just hit you or you kind of sense it uh, beforehand? I think it's, it's just asking questions and listening. Uh, those are the two things. So we do a lot of community-based like engagement. So I also have a nonprofit organization called KidMob in that I've really learned the power of listening and power of asking good questions to the community in different ways. So that's communicating in the different modes, uh, whether written, verbal, acting, movement-based, things like that. So allowing each individual to communicate in the way that they're best, they feel most comfortable. So if we have a community meeting and we only like speak and do auditory, um, we're missing like 60% of the population's like actual method of communication. Uh, so we will do like uh, sketching exercises, we'll do like word write out exercises, we'll do improv exercises, whatever the community really needs to feel comfortable to start coming to the table and saying what they need. Fascinating. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Arts or Earth is a nonprofit media organization headquartered in San Francisco Bay Area that promotes the arts worldwide by providing complete event promotion for artists, organizations, promoters, and venues. Arts Earth covers dance, film, literature, music, theater, visual arts, and multimedia, featuring original reviews of performances, exhibits, and showings, fundraisers, and live engagements worldwide by the Arts Earth staff. For more information, please visit artsearth.org. That's A-R-T-S-E-A-R-T-H dot org. We're talking today with Tyler Pugh, founder and principal of LMNOP Design. For more information, you can visit lmnopdesigninc.com. Again, lmnopdesigninc.com. Tyler... If you would touch back on the uh, spaces and how you, 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 you quoted here, make spaces powerful. What does that mean to you? And can you share an example of making a space powerful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like for me, a powerful space engages all the different senses. A powerful space uh, tells a really strong story and leads the 
whether it's a customer or whether it's um, one of the employees on a really strong journey, basically. Stories are the most important thing to us, us as humans. Uh, sure. And so they give us meaning or yeah. And, um, and so for me, spaces and environments can actually can help highlight uh, human experiences and their, their stories of them. How we do that uh, we, because we're a design build firm, because we value collaboration in the truest sense, we have in-house, we have designers, we have fabricators, we have digital CNC mill, we have on-site construction crew. And because of that, we can actually start asking really complex questions early on in the design process. Like how do we actually make something and make it within the budget and still achieve a really high level of design, like design intent through the whole process. I see a lot of really great design get either value engineered to nothingness. Mm -hmm. or, to nothingness. Yeah, no. uh, unfortunately, which is really painful. Or that the worst thing is a really great design that never gets built because costing and things like that weren't taken into account at the beginning. And so that's what we value. So how we okay. get there is we um, bring costing into the picture by the second round of concept design. We're starting to talk about the budget by that level. And then we carry through the concept through schematic design, design development, and construction documents. We do uh, like RON budgets at each one of those markers. And we can do that because we have a construction team that's seen the concept, understands the intent of the concept, and how you would actually make that. How do you actually build that in physical space? This works at small to medium scale. It gets a little bit harder at larger scale, but there's other examples of firms that work collaboratively across and integrated project delivery is an example of how that's used with AIA. BIM as a software is doing that when it comes to more of the MEP systems, but it's not, I would challenge that it's yeah. not actually pushing design forward, it's just making it more efficient. Uh, so that would be oh, good call. My, yeah. my critique of it. Um, so yeah, goal is to make uh, great, beautiful designs. An example of where we've done that, uh, I think, Spark Social is the best example for that. It's a food truck park in Mission Bay in San Francisco. For that project, we had everything from name, logo, branding, typeface. Um, we talked about onboarding package with the client, so how do you say hello at Spark, to site layout, smorged carts. We gutted a double-decker bus and put that in. So we really had a lot of control, but use that word loosely. Like command, we, maybe? Yeah, command. That would be a way uh, <laughs> of saying it. Uh, that's a good military term for it. Uh, command over this is the vision, this is the intent of the project. And an example of how we came up with that vision, we distilled down all of the interviews with the client, the staff, the things like that, too. We knew that that project would be successful if uh, kids and dogs felt welcome there. And so we designed a whole project really, really oh, around that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I so, like that a lot. So. It, have you ever thought of uh, being, your, in essence, your own, in effect, your own developer? Yeah. Because you're seeing the totality of, uh, just from what you've described, you're seeing the totality everywhere. I mean, yeah. especially if you're looking at it from kids and dogs. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the visions of the company is, is where it? we okay. go. 
particularly and the influence of that in San Diego, there's a couple develop architect developers. I can't remember the names off my head, but they influence. We did one site tour, and especially in the 70s, there was about three or four of them that came up that architects became developers so that they would have control over the projects. Command. Yeah, command. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yes, correct. Uh, the best pivoted word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how, how did it go? Yeah. It's been great. Like, yeah. so there's, I can't remember, it starts with an S, and I can't remember it. In San Diego, uh, has become well known for that, uh, being owner, like basically owner, developer, architect. Oh, uh, Jonathan Siegel. Yes, there okay. we go. Thank yes. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So you've, that's an, he's an obviously example mm-hmm. of that working. Now, let's fast forward a bit, yeah. let's say five years from now. And if you have a, a shift with architects and uh, great builders and designers who are their own developers, yeah. what, do you, what do you envision the community, how does a community benefit from that? Uh, the community of architects or the community? Just the, gen- the community, yeah. the, the populace, the inhabitants. Yeah. So I deeply love and respect architects for the knowledge base that they and I received and the ability to ask questions of the community and start to see a bigger picture vision. And I think architects should really be in the driver's seat of a lot of the community projects or the development projects because we start asking more complex questions than sometimes the Sometimes, not always, I would say developer ask, which are more financially based questions. We still have to ask those questions of profit and things like that, profitability. But if we can ask profitability and design intent and community empowerment all at the same time, which is possible, then all of a sudden really great design starts to come to the table. And what I mean by great design is the community feels like they are being heard and that they are a part of and take ownership of the projects that are coming up rather than being dictated to them. Yeah, excellent. Uh, If we go back to, um, how about, you know, as a a child, if I recall, I'm not sure what age that you discovered that that there is even an official field of architecture. Was it high school? No, that was in college. In college. I knew of it, but not. never even thought of it. Okay, so we take that and we... Go back to the beginning. What? How do you feel or think if it's, I'm not sure it was a science, humanities probably can fit in both. If it was introduced to children, architecture mm-hmm. at a, let's say elementary school level, where they at least had a, an awareness. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should mention that. Okay. Uh, Kid Mob, uh, which is a mobile ah. kid integrated design firm, is not about preaching architecture, but it's uh, really preaching around creative problem solving. And how we do that is we bring a series of designers, engineers, architects, creative types to middle schools typically and then also high schools. We've worked with elementary too, but really focus on middle school to really solve community-based challenges. And I think rather than preaching, for me, preaching architecture as a career path, I would actually advocate that we give agency and accountability to students to solve problems within their communities. Because what I see right now is we're not really, I was, let me take a step back. I was given my, um, my family and my parents, I'm so grateful for, because I was given a lot of autonomy to use tools. My family owns a logging business up in Northern California. And so I was, I grew up welding and woodworking and like, and was never really told, no, don't do it. It's just be safe kind of thing. 
with that, I took a ton of responsibility for how I move and operate in this world because of that. And I think every time we've worked with kids and given them tools and responsibility, they have always stepped up. Like, I've never not seen that happen. And so I would say, let's, let's start doing that. Like, give them responsibility of saying, like, hey, if you see a problem, you have the right to solve it. Not only right, but you're a person of this world and you have the responsibility to solve it. <laughs> All of a sudden, we build a generation of problem solvers. A lot would happen real yeah. quick. Yeah. So what was the uh, official inspiration for KidMob? Is it KidsMob? KidMob? Uh, so it's KidMob, okay. K-I-D-M-O-B. So it was in grad school, 2011, at CCA. It was really the blend of getting to go back to my hometown and meeting with a very influential person in my life who like transformed my life, basically, at middle school to see she's a born educator and got to go back into her classroom and talk to her students and just getting inspired by that. And then seeing that my master's degree in architecture is really what we're talking about in education a lot, which is it's self-directed learning, it's project-based learning, it's social-emotional learning. It's like all of these things blended into a right nice little school called architecture school, uh, yeah. especially at the grad level. And so myself and a team of five other architecture grads teamed up and we went back to that uh, small rural hometown of mine for a three-day workshop and then that paradigm shift in my life to build that organization and the woman that's that was the principal of that school the paradigm shift in my life she's now the executive director of KidMob. oh great great so how many do you reach out to school districts public private it's a mix most of it they call us is basically it at this point and um, we're looking at developing a couple more systematic programs we've worked in Haiti, Philippines, and throughout the U.S. right now. Yeah. And when did you begin the year? Uh, that was 2011. Okay. Yeah. So has it uh, grown as in addition to LMNOP design? Yep. So that's been, they've run kind of kind of parallel, and now that's Sue, uh, the woman, the executive director of KidMob. She's taking that on and really kind of assessing out how to move that forward. So I'm, I'm learning how to uh, take a backseat. <laughs> I like it. You said I'm learning how. I'm learning how. <laughs> okay, so there's, there's a still, again, a tendency to want to be at the front. There's a tendency to lean on impatience, like we said, uh, okay. to make things move forward. And sometimes I'm learning how to be patient as things move forward without my energy of pushing them in. Say that again. I, I, kind of, I like that, yeah. but I can't recall it all. Yeah, so I think I've learned that there's great strength in things that you can push into the universe, like just a lot of energy and movement. And then sometimes things are already in motion and you don't actually need to do anything. They're actually yeah. they're happening right now. And can so, you share with us some examples of that actually occurring to where it, it reinforces your, um, your belief? Yeah. So an uh, example would be this podcast. Like, okay, yeah, just, there you go. <laughs> like, okay. like, we haven't marketed or advertised Elemental P Design at all. It's been word of mouth, and it keeps things keep coming to the table. And so I have to believe that we're our, we are challenging um, some of the status quos within the industries, um, both design and construction. And I have to believe that there's some meaning behind that. Yeah, you know, we shared at the beginning is um, I said, Tyler's kind of the five percenter, Charlotte, our, our audio engineer. That he's a five percenter, and Charlotte, before we went back into our another studio, said, "Yeah, I got that." <laughs> Even just the short time we were with it, 
here's where that five percent is. Our belief is, our experience has been the vast majority of of builders, specifically if they have fifty employees or less, uh, more so on the residential than the commercial. There's a, a a sort of myopic view when it comes to what people actually need and more of what they want mm-hmm. and taking care of their immediate circle, but not a, a larger picture. And uh, you're as more than refreshing seeing, just as I said, your website and then obviously your presence, that there's a there's a shift to kind of, um, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that uh, right? Am I reaching or? Yeah, no. I, okay. Uh, myself and our team deeply care about the work that we're doing because Again, it's utilizing the one finite resource that we have, which is time on Earth, and we're pushing things into the world that affect other people. And we take that really, I take that deeply seriously. So that goes to how we use materials and how we approach the design process itself. We care deeply. It's evident. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Yeah, we're going to give you a shameless plug for KidMob. KidMob is the mobile kid integrated design firm. KidMob is a Bay Area fiscally sponsored non-for-profit organization that believes design education is an opportunity for creative engagement and community empowerment. It takes its passion on the road to bring innovative approach to local communities around the world. KidMob engages in the design process through project-based learning. KidMob workshops use the design process as a beginning curriculum framework on which to build a customized local project brief based on a partner-identified need. The workshops facilitate partners in devising imaginative solutions for their communities by their community. We strive, they strive, to foster local stewardship within all of its projects. So if you want to find out more about KidMob, go K-I-D-M-O-B for boy.org. We're talking today with Tyler Pugh founder and principal of LMNOP Design. For more information, feel free to visit lmnopdesigninc.com. That's lmnopdesigninc.com. Tyler, with um, architecture and construction business constantly evolving, the expectations evolve as well. What's changed kind of in the last say, three to five years in, in, the, uh, in the building industry from your experience? Uh, price. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. important. Yeah, price. Sorry. Yeah, it's the, the need and price all at the same time. So uh, the need continues to be very high, uh, need for construction, for skilled labor. Uh, like um, I sit on a lot of panels discussing about the deficit in labor that we're going to face and are facing at this point right now. And... Price, I'd say, like cost, obviously, are getting drove up. Those are also because not just San Francisco or the Bay Area, but across the state of California, uh, construction is booming right now. Increasing natural disasters are happening, such as uh, the Paradise uh, wildfires that were up there that decimated an entire town. Um, we're going to see more of those, more than likely, in the Sierras. And so we need, we really need um, more skilled labor within uh, the construction world. Within the design community, I see shifts and changes to more understanding around like lean construction techniques, integrated project delivery, moving back to a model which contractors and architects work hand in hand rather than in a combative relationship, they're actually working together. 
uh, there's a really strong narrative between architects and contractors that they're combative, mm-hmm. uh, that <laughs> it's like uh, it's always a battle. I think that's uh, ridiculous. Uh, I think it's uh, a strong narrative because you're speaking two different languages and why not just translate one to the next and sit down and talk to the contractor what the values are and why they're trying to move a project forward in the way that they are. And the architect really challenging their own ego and what they believe is right or wrong because sometimes the contractor may actually know how to build it better than they do. Yeah. Going back on those the values, how have you found or example of, of uh, what was potentially a contentious relationship and it actually became not just harmonious but actually looking forward to it? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I've had that with some of the subcontractors. Uh, right now we have great relationships with our subcontractors, but I think, I think why it got there was is because... It's a similar thing with education. We took industry and we siloed it so many times and siloed it, siloed it, siloed it, so that no one was talking to each other and everyone's working only on their thing, basically. From a litigious and a liability standpoint, that makes sense. You're very protective, right? Same thing with architecture. You only look over your domain. Now, the reality is is it, it works in service of only protecting your liability, but it doesn't protect or it doesn't support the project in moving forward faster or with a better intent because actually you need to collaborate again that word working together across laterally MEP needs to work together MEP needs to work with architecture like architecture needs to work with the builder like all we all gotta work together is basically it and so rather than setting up as a combative relationship that automatically kind of starts to defend as like other or litigiousness like we automatically pull everyone into the room and start talking right at the beginning and start to break down the walls. We're all people. We're just trying to get the job done. Everyone's trying to make money at the end of the day, but how can we make it easier and faster? And so asking our subcontractors and sitting down with them and being like, do you see ways of saving time? Like what what would you need from us to save uh, time or money on the project? And they're kind of taken aback by that because it's oftentimes thrown on them, so to speak. Yeah. Again, just touching on something, and it may be a little esoteric, but to, to work with that process that you just shared with us and to make it easier, more comfortable, and love it with joy and also have prosperity at the end of it all. Mm-hmm. I don't have a specific formula for that, but it, it, you shared one that I think was pretty enlightening. Is it something you've thought of before? I have. It's okay. been uh, it's been challenging because from a business model standpoint, Elemental P is probably one of the dumber business models that's out there because I took on the risk of the contractor, a fabrication shop, and a design crew. We're not a licensed architect firm, or nice. I'm not a licensed architect, and so we, in bringing everything in house, there is a lot of risk to that associated with that, and also it's very hard to basically. Um, speaking very candidly, it's very hard to juggle three different revenue streams with three different like kind of invoicing structures and things like that, let alone three different kind of contracting like ways. Like my lawyer, who's amazing (laughs) at writing the contracts, uh, have her kind of scratching her head some of the time to figure out how we how we actually protect the business, but also hold our integrity that this is better way of doing business and it's worth fighting for. Um, So. Yeah, I like that. Again, that risk. Uh, we had uh, one of our guests, Ron Baker, who is a, a CPA, but uh, primarily does a lot of work with value pricing and as uh, 
in the Hall of Fame anyway. He, he's outstanding. He put risk is actually where the profit is. Mm-hmm. What's your idea and thoughts on that? Completely. Okay. Like I, it's, I think, so I worked construction for a bunch of years before I went into architecture, and that's why, and I built things my entire life. And so when I got into architecture, I really didn't understand why there was such a disconnect between the building community and the architects. Like I was like, you both have the same goal to make amazing sure. places. And so what I started digging into was kind of the history of the business of architecture. And while I was at CCA, I had the chance to do part of the DMBA program there. So it's a MBA in design strategy. It's really brilliant program and it's got to take some of the uh, classes there. So it's like almost like merging an MBA and a design degree all together, Ooh. which is brilliant. I yeah. think it's what the world needs. Um, <laughs> and I actually think we should merge MBA and architecture together because oh, yeah. I'll have some uh, thoughts on that in a sec. But So I went into architecture and started looking at the, the business of architecture. And I started to realize that architects started to, when developers started coming to the picture mid-century, architects started to take a step back from the risk and also the reward mm-hmm. at the same time, right? Profit. And when they did that, they also lost a bit of the command or control of the projects themselves. And um, really focused on code compliance and being able to move and manage projects through getting it through the city and less on like the financial return of a project or things like that. And what I see in my criticism of kind of the business of architecture is while mitigating risk, you also limited the amount of return or reward reward that not only you get, but actually is perceived in the community that is gonna value. At the same time, we're the only professional industry that doesn't have like set rates across the industry and actually can compete against each other for the lowest bidder. Mm -hmm. Um, Look at architects, or excuse me, at doctors or lawyers, don't see that in that not world. at all right yes and you also see the return that they're making this is a professional degree right and you have to go through certifications you have to go through tests you have to go through hours you have to do like all of these things yeah. that other professional services have to do and yet we're the only ones that are competing against each other for the lowest bidder so my criticism is that we're actually not teaching business to students, now not everyone in architecture needs to know business, but when you have, when I went into school, down at the new school, it was, the projector was 81% of incoming grad school students expected to own their own business at the end of it for architecture, 81%. So you, you understand that the majority of those people are gonna go out and start their own business. We had one business class. Oh that seems nearly criminal to me, to oh. the industry as a whole. And so I'm a very <laughs> loud, outspoken person to like, here's this amazing career path, this amazing skill set and knowledge base that has immense value to this world right now. Immense. The ability to take complex, creative, creative um, like opportunities and challenges and integrate them with system thinking. Tech companies are scooping up architects right now for that specific yeah. reason, is you can integrate the left brain and the right brain together, right? Uh, the creative and the engineering together. And so we offer immense value to the world. We need to shift into a place in which we know how to value what we're offering to the world and start to charge what we should for it, build the business and models around it and things like that. And so I came out of school 
in my master's degree, I couldn't work for somebody else. And so I saw going down the contracting route as a higher risk, but a greater profitability to it and a better means to actually uh, create what I want to create in this world. That's awesome. Uh, I like that you, you couldn't work for someone else. And uh, here's, here's what I'm going to attribute it to. And if I'm, if I'm wrong, correct me. I think it's the value versus cost in that you understood the value that you're bringing that a set company would look at you in the, as a line item as a cost, mm-hmm. not what is the value to your, their company. Completely. And that would actually significantly hinder their own profitability. Completely. Okay. Um, I mean, the architecture model right now is based off of hire a bunch of really smart, intelligent interns at lowest rate or don't pay them as many as you can to crank through. And this is not all architecture. This is like, um, this is like the a capital, lot. Yeah, <laughs> capital A architects, yeah. which everyone's looking to and wants to be, not everyone, but let's say the vast majority of students that come in can name 10 architects on their hand. All of them are capital A architects. Most of them operate under this model, which is you have a lot of low-paying um, interns that are coming directly out of school. That doesn't serve the industry. It doesn't actually value the talent that is coming out of here, nor teach the talent how to value themselves in the industry. And so, um, like, even with my team members, I'll have conversations on compensation and challenge them that they're not asking for enough is basically it, because they need to know what is the industry what is the business and what is their value and how to operate within that? Yeah. What's your uh, your feelings or thoughts on uh, understanding versus just knowing? My opinion is if once you understand, then the, va- the value, wow, it's significant versus just I know. Mm-hmm. What's your thought on? A good question. Like I, at least how I would define the terms, like understanding for me is something like, it's almost theoretical, like I understand why these things operate this way. Knowing is something that you embody for me. So when you know something, you embody it and there's not a way to move around that. So when I know, when I say I know something, it's almost in my DNA. Uh, And so then I cannot not operate with that in mind is basically okay here's here's another one this just came up just uh, yesterday <laughs> is um there's another show obviously we have and it's a shameless plug here at stanford called beyond the champions where, mm-hmm. where we interview athletes coaches administrators executives alumni former alumni at stanford mm-hmm. and uh, beyond just the their participation as a in academia and as an athletics and um coming up with that uh, that title is if you going back to your dna is if you're either at the top of the chain which be legendary or a champion or you default into just a winner or you default into just a finisher or even just a player Mm -hmm. is that hierarchy for lack of a better word uh important to you as well in operating in your collaborative Hmm. Uh, connection with the, the people you need to work with, or are they are they legendary in what they can deliver? Are they a champion? What they can deliver? Or are they a, are they are just a, a winner? Mm-hmm. I mean, but then here's where I'm going with mm-hmm. this: is if the default is to just be a player or even a, a finisher, does that make your job a lot easier and more fun and fulfilling when you're working with people that are you know value that those those attributes? 
I think, I guess what I'm, the question I'm hearing Yeah, is, please is like, interpret again. Yeah. This is all fresh <laughs> and new in my brain. So um, I think there's an internal drive in all of my, t- like the people on the team. Like, and that drive is to want to continue to seek to do better in their work. If they view it as a job, like just a job where they come in, punch in, punch out, like this, I can be honest, the speed at which I move and the leadership that I challenge people with, they're not going to be fulfilled. Yes, okay. They're going to be uncomfortable, I should say. And so (laughs) I am really appreciative that the team and the team members that are attracted to coming to work at LMNOP have an internal drive and they want to pursue being... I don't know if it's legendary from an outward progressive, like that's a simplistic way. view. Yeah. But I think uh, internally they want they there's something in them that wants to push and move the industry, their own creative path, like whatever it is forward. The thing is, is it doesn't all have to be the same because if it is, then we're all competing for one thing basically, rather than each of us moving our own like our own uniqueness in this world and understanding it's learning how to understand its value, positioning it and moving it forward continually because it is a value to the world itself. That's what the team I think shows up for. I'd love to ask them. Yeah. yeah. We'll have a chance. That's for sure. Once the show is broadcast, Uh, Tyler, is there anything else that we may not have touched on in our, uh, your interview today that uh, you'd like to share with, uh, with your audience and listeners? Yeah. Like I, the one thing is, is like I, I know my language can often come across as very definitive, but I actually am deeply seeking to find more people in this world that are challenging the same thing. So um, open book in that regard. <laughs> and like, let's find a better way of working together, whether it's collaboratively building projects or things like that. Um, I'm really excited about that. And so I, I seek other people. We're doing a panel discussion for SF Design Week on June 23rd. Uh, Yep, June 23rd at 2 p.m. at our shop. Uh, You can register for the event on Eventbrite uh, through SF Design Week. And the panel discussion is really on the business of design and the balance between a product-based model and a service-based model. And that's what LMNOP has kind of started to really really investigate uh, as a means of stabilizing basically accounts receivable is what it is, uh, stabilizing the business. And so I'm intrigued at who's who's scratching the surface on this because we are looking at kind of shifting the traditional means and uh, methods of architecture and construction. And we have to from a resource base, both in labor and also materials. And so, yeah, starting to ask these questions and figuring out and being comfortable testing solutions and being like, I was wrong about that. That was a bad idea. I'm real comfortable doing that. Excellent. Uh, Tyler, it's been an honor and a, and a real pleasure having you on our show today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank, Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Tyler Pugh, founder and principal of LMNOP Design. LMNOP Design brings the design and fabrication process into one seamless stroke. LMNOP specializes in immersive and branded environments with a focus on commercial, retail, and restaurants. And is a California registered General B contractor. For more information, you're free to visit LMNOPDesignIncorp.com. Again, correction, LMNOPDesignInc.com. 
www.thinkingarchitect.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at KZSU Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location throughout California. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hyagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.